Okay, let's begin with just a little prayer that you all know. O Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls. O good one. Amen. There are a bunch of different <laughs> translations of prayers out there in, from different prayer books. So, um, as I was learning the prayers of the church, I decided that I would use, try to do my best to use the ones that we use here at St. Paul. And some of them, like that O Heavenly King, I think, I think it's in some of the OCA prayer book translations. In the Antiochian one, it says, instead of impurity, it says stain. So there are some, just some different translations out there, but it's, it's okay to use one or the other at home as long as it doesn't trip you up. You know, so I decided to keep it simple that I would just try to memorize the common prayers that we do collectively at church. I would try to memorize those and do the way we do the Trisagion prayers, for example, the creed and the translation of the Psalms that we use. You'll notice in different prayer books, there are different Psalm translations. So we tend to use uh, the translations of the Psalms that come from this this book. Um, it's put out by Holy Transfiguration Monastery. This is called their pocket psalter, or a psalter is just another word for a book of psalms. And uh, we at St. Paul, we, you, some of you know the history of this parish. We have a group of people who became Orthodox who were kind of pseudo-Orthodox. You know, they were they were evangelicals who discovered orthodoxy and were implementing orthodox practices, or so they kind of thought, you know, to the best of their ability, into their um, their worship times. And uh, <clears throat> that part of that big group in California. Yep, they were part of that, and then there was a big group up here as well okay. that converted. They were called the EOC, the Evangelical Orthodox. And actually, I'll have to share this with you guys. Maybe someone can send me a little text or message to remind me. There's, there's actually a, a little documentary that's maybe 20, 30 minutes called um, Evangelicals Welcome Home or something like that that's about that whole phenomenon, that movement of people who converted to orthodoxy. But we started with that, and with that came people who were... It was before the Internet was really... It was before the Internet was used. So you couldn't just print out liturgical music, texts, recordings, and things like that. So the people who were here were gathering resources where they could find them. You know, photocopies of music, typing out psalms from, you know, from the New King James or for the, from the Revised Standard Version or something like that. And uh, so we have in some of, some of our special feast day services, we still have some of those different translations that show up from some of those earlier days. Some of it's because of, it corresponds with music that we use, you know, that people are familiar with. But, but by and large, this is the, the go-to for Psalms. So if, like Psalm 50 shows up in most of our services. Psalm 50 
in the Orthodox Bible. If you look at your Protestant Bible, your NIV or New American Standard or ESV or something, it'll be Psalm 51 because there's a different numbering between the the Orthodox and the Protestant and Catholic Bibles. But uh, but anyway, I highly recommend trying to do that to the best of your ability. You can't do it with every single prayer that we do, but with the common psalms and some of the common prayers and even the creed, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, some, I look for the, I look for the age to come. Some say I look for the world to come. I think age is a better translation, but our whole archdiocese uses the same translation of the creed, for example. So it's good to memorize the one that we say here in um, church together. So that's kind of just a little practical tip it's the same one in that one, exactly. That the little the little pocket prayer book, which I actually happen to keep in my in my pocket. Someone said to me the other day, I had it laying out. They said that looks like a passport, and I'm like, it is. It's a passport to heaven. A prayer book, anyway. But uh, yeah, that so that is the translation that's in here. And this is actually a pretty good little prayer book. Um, there. There was a, a previous version that was out that was lacking, especially in the communion prayers. It didn't have all of the communion prayers. But the newer version of it has all nine of the pre-communion prayers that we say, for example. And there are a lot of little things like uh, self-help tools, excuse me, self-help tools. There are little um, help helps that can help you uh, as you're preparing for uh, confession, for example. Questions for self-examination, and it goes through all of the commandments, and it gives you things to think about. So if you can get a hold of one of these, keep it in your bag or your pocket, it's a nice thing to have all the time. You know, of course, I keep, uh, I keep a New Testament in my pocket. It doesn't have the, doesn't have the Orthodox Psalms in it, because we don't, we don't have in English a little one-volume Orthodox version of the New Testament in Psalms. I'd like to see that happen but I have a little pocket New Testament and Psalms that I always keep in my one pocket. I always keep a prayer rope on me. That's a, that's a little gospel in and of itself. And, and then on the other side, I keep a little prayer book. So even if I don't have my bag with me or something, I always have resources available. And in my bag, I always keep a notebook, generally a, a psalm book. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll have a whole Bible with me. I have a compact Bible that I carry with me sometimes. And uh, I won't get into what I carry in my, my woven bag with all my um, priest supplies and things. But anyway, just a few little comments about, about uh, prayers and translations that will be helpful for you. And then let's talk about the Trinity in the Old Testament. This is the little special study following up on our discussion about the Holy Trinity that we did last week. So although the doctrine of the Trinity was not fully revealed until the coming of Christ, we find hints of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, in which is recounted the creation of the world and God's dealings with the people of Israel. The book of Genesis records that when God was creating mankind, God said, let us make man in our image 
and after our likeness. And there have been many different attempts at interpreting that. You know, maybe it was a, a bad translation or maybe like a, it was the, the royal we, so to speak. I think we mentioned that last week, but we believe that it's a reference to God as Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Our Holy Fathers understood the use of the plural here as an indication of the three persons of the Trinity. And the psalmist tells us that God created the world through his word and his spirit. In Psalm 32, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. And the word, the Greek word for, um, for spirit is... It looks like people will say pneuma sometimes, but actually it's pronounced pneuma in Greek. And uh, it's E-U-M-A. And it means, it's translated as breath and spirit. And so, um, some, this is one of the things that's tricky about translation is that the translator gets to use what, what, which one they think the original author meant. And in the biblical language, pnevma can, it doesn't have to mean breath or spirit. It can mean both simultaneously, for example, because with the Holy Spirit is the breath of God. The, you know, God, God, God of God coming forth and affecting its, his creation. So, um, and then, of course, we know that word, the word, I've written it for you guys, but that word, um, logos, word, which is not the same as graphi or a written word, but it means, um, it means like so many things. It can mean purpose, reason, it can even mean act or action but there's no there's no perfect translation into english sometimes the best thing to do when you're when you're talking about certain words in the original language that don't translate well is just to use that word like to call christ the logos instead of calling him the word you know sometimes it's just easier to say logos um Kind of like that word noose that we talk about, N-O-U-S. There is no English equivalent to that word, noose. Um, there's a word that sounds like it in English, but it's a very different word, you know, a slipknot. But N-O-U-S, it doesn't translate well as mind or intellect or consciousness or, you know, it's just best preserved as what it is. In the New Testament, you find it mostly as mind. But uh, continuing on, furthermore, one of the Hebrew words for God, Elohim, carries with it the idea of plurality. So it doesn't just mean one, it means many, more than one. Thus the name of God itself denotes the plurality of persons within the unity of nature. Sometimes in, in uh, different, in different uh, names, you'll, you'll see 
L as a, as a prefix or a suffix. Like, uh, I don't know what it means off the top of my head, but Raphael means like, do you know what Raphael means? Anyone? Or Gabriel? That L is a reference to like their, their, their function in relation to God. Like a servant of God or at the, you know, at the hand of God or something like that. I should get better at those, some of those uh, Hebrew names. One of the most important Old Testament hints of the Trinity is the visitation of Abraham by three angels. And I forgot to bring it. Usually I have the icon. I can bring the icon with me. Some probably the most famous Orthodox icon, if not the most famous, maybe second most. It's, it, it's probably a, a close tie with the Sinai Pantocrator icon. This icon um, from St. Catherine Monastery, Mount Sinai, is where it originates. It's a lot larger than this, but probably one of the most famous ones. And then the one that's called the Hospitality of Abraham or the Holy Trinity, it's called. The most famous one is by um, Andrei Rublev. But it's referencing this event in uh, Genesis. And here's the little story. The Lord appeared unto him, Abraham, in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, excuse me, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort, comfort ye, ye your hearts. After that you shall pass on, you shall continue to, on your way. For therefore are you come to your servant. And they said, so do as thou hast said. And notice that in this account, there is a, a constant interplay between singular, singular and plural. My Lord, he says, and then, he's, and then he talks about them. So uh, the Lord appears to Abraham, and yet he sees three men. And he addresses them at one point in the singular and later in the plural. And he's not trying to use a, general, gen, a gender neutral pronoun like people might say these days. He's, just, he's actually using it as a plural. Um, compare this to the account of this account, excuse me, with what St. Gregory Nazianzus in the fourth century has to say about the Trinity in his Oration 41. St. Gregory, he was from Nazianzus and he's mostly known as St. Gregory Nazianzen or Nazianzus in the Western world, but we call him, what do we call him? I, the, uh, I want to say it's, it's Gregory the Theologian. Theologian. Yeah. He's the one, St. Gregory the Theologian. Who's, I, who's a relic we have here. And I quoted him today, too. I referred to his teaching about the passions. So he says, listen to this. This is one of the, one of the most famous quotes of St. Gregory. He says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, 
I think, I think of him as a whole. And my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I'm thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch. I cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. So if you want to tell your friends like what you believe about the Holy Trinity, you can just read that quote to them and let their minds be boggled a little bit. But he's, he's showing that, 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 that there is no distinction or no confusion between you know, the, the unity and the threeness or the, you know, the trinity of the persons of God. You can't think about three, so as them as three, so as to separate them from their unity. And you can't think about the unity of God so as to remove the distinction between the persons who are in perfect communion with one another. The only icon of the Trinity which the church allows, strictly speaking, is not an icon of the Trinity per se, but of the visitation of these three angels to Abraham. So you'll see, I don't, I don't think we have it hanging on the wall in here. Oh yeah, I could bring it up on my, on my uh, iPad here because I'm connected to the internet. Do you guys know what icon I'm talking about? Most of you. Oh okay, all of you have probably seen it then. Let's see here. The visual is always helpful. Yeah. Father Jeremiah, where that? Three angels, I mean, like that Abraham, you know, when they, they were in the way to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, correct? Um, were those the same thing, I mean, the same angels, well, that appear when Jesus, um, right before they came to get Jesus, when he told his disciples that were with him to pray, and then he came back and they were sleeping, and then when they went with him, then they saw the three angels, Next to Jesus, the two angels, and then Jesus was the third one. Oh, I'm not sure what. When uh, right before uh, Jesus uh, was taken to get crucified, when he was praying, yes. He was arrested. Yeah. And then when they they when one of the apostles said um, they wanted to erase the tent for Abraham and. Oh. No, I'm sorry, you're thinking about um, transfiguration. Correct. And that was, <clears throat> that was Moses and Elijah that appeared at that time. Correct, so it was actually Moses and Elijah. It was Moses and Elijah, yeah. It wasn't angels who appeared as Moses correct. and Elijah. It was actually... So it was actually Moses and Elijah. Correct, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So this is, this is considered an Old Testament theophany, actually. An appearance of God. Not a full manifestation like... I mean, it was... But, but uh, a way that God revealed himself... In, in place and time before the full manis- manifestation of his uh, person's, per, excuse me, his identity, God's identity as Holy Trinity took taken place. So you have all these like this, like foreshadowings, you could say. This is one of the most famous icons. And there are b- some beautiful reflections written just about, about this icon. I don't remember, does this one look familiar to all of you? It was the first one that I bought. And it was way before I was Orthodox, but I was starting to get interested in Orthodoxy and iconography. So I thought maybe I could just kind of have iconography without having to become Orthodox. And I'm like, who am I to steal from another tradition? You know what I mean? Like, 
it was born from within a particular context, an experience of church and faith. Who am I to say, oh, I'll take a little element of your tradition and use it the way I like to. You know, my integrity was being challenged at that time. But uh, so that is the, the Holy Trinity icon or the hospitality of Abraham. So this is the only icon of the Trinity per se that we have in the church. And one can't make a pictorial representation of the Father because he's spirit and has no depictable form. And even theologically speaking, I mean, God, sometimes God is, the, the Father is depicted as, as an old man or something like that, you know, with a big white beard. Um, one of my favorite icons has one of my least favorite elements. There's this beautiful icon that I have down in my office called uh, the burning bush. And it has Moses ascending um, Mount Sinai to receive the the law from God. It's got the, the burning bush. I don't know if you guys remember this story. The bush that was burning yet was not consumed. And inside the burning bush is an icon of the Theotokos because she's considered the fulfillment of what the burning bush was. Something that was, was, was encompassed by the presence of God, but not consumed by it. And so she's actually considered in the church's tradition to be the true burning bush because she held God within her and <coughs> conveyed the very life of God to the world. And so that's the teaching of St. John of Damascus. So you got St. John of Damascus down in the corner writing about it, you know, explicating this. You've got the people of Israel building a golden calf down, down here, you know, creating their own idol. But then you have this old man leaning down from the skies, handing off a couple of stone tablets. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's surrounded in what's called a mandorla. A mandorla is like a big, uh, like a um, semicircle kind of thing or some... Um, and it's, when, when something is surrounded in that, it's, it means it's not meant to be literal. Like we're not conveying that God is like an old man in the sky who you know, reaches down and you know, has eyes, eyes and ears and nose and hands and, and a beard or something like that. So if you understand it theologically, that this image is just representing the, the person of the Father, it's, it's okay, but it's still, it removes... It removes the, the essential understanding of the transcendence of God. And that's why we never depict the Father in any way. So I'll have to show you that icon because when you see a copy, you're going to want a copy of it. It's really, it's intense and very beautiful and rich. Well, one thing I've always found problematic is most modern depictions of God the Father tend to be uh, tend to base God the Father either off of Zeus or Arana. Yeah, that from the Renaissance. Yeah. and you know that time when they're being influenced by by pagan artwork. Yeah, that's right. And that that's a whole like even just the development of art in liturgical art in, in various influences how they have affected. Uh, certain depictions of God throughout history. That's a huge topic of study. There's a really good conversation between Jonathan Pajot and Father John Strickland. Father John is the priest out in Polsbo, right across the water here. 
Um, he is a consummate scholar, like church, hist- church historian. Excellent teacher. Just, and he's written a multi-volume set on church history. And they, they go into detail about how the philosophical influences and the mindset of the West affected church art in the West. And how you went from having these, these like many-eyed cherubim who can't even really be depicted other than a face with wings to like these little fat babies, you know, that are like more like fertility gods, for example. Um, so if I can find that, I have, I'm going to have to have a list of things for you guys to tell me to send you. That one about the evangelicals converting to orthodoxy is actually on a playlist. I have a YouTube playlist that I have uh, titled Recommended for Inquirers that I could send you. But I'm rebelling against the digital, digitalization of everything, so I'm always reticent to send. I, YouTube is a black hole. You can go in there to watch one little cool orthodox video, and next thing you know, you're learning about some cowboy on a cattle ranch who's cooking for 30 people or something like that. Or worse, I don't know, who knows what else. So, um, I'm like, I should, that's why I love putting books into people's hands. Books, real books, real icons. You know, you don't have to go into the, uh, the Eye of Sauron. So, <laughs> but we can't make a pictorial representation of the Father because he's spirit and has no depictable form. So that's why we have to be careful about that. And because, because God, is be, God is beyond our comprehension, so we have to be careful to, to not even tempt ourselves to think that we can perceive of God, of God fully. Otherwise, we start to create God in our own image rather than seeking to be conformed to the image of God. We take the mystery, we're constantly trying to remove the mystery out of God um, so that we can worship what makes sense to us rather than what's revealed to us. And also, it it doesn't threaten uh, it doesn't threaten me as much, and it doesn't require me to change as much, maybe a little, you know, but but not a transfiguration, which can take place, as we know from the lives of the saints. So similarly, one can depict the Holy Spirit only symbolically, as a dove or as tongues of fire because the Holy Spirit has no bodily form. The angels, which were clearly seen by Abraham, provide the church with an indirect way of depicting the All-Holy Trinity. And then, this is the most famous icon, which I just showed you, by St. Andrei Rublov in the 15th century. What do I have written? I have a little note. Oh yeah, show. I have show Rublov's Trinity icon. Um, is the most famous one. So perhaps this is the most famous icon in the world, I think, along with the Sinai Pantocrator icon. Um, what makes this icon so special is the way in which Rubov captured the interplay between the, the one and the three. In the icon, we clearly see three angels represented the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in that these three form a perfect circle and complete communion of love. There's no disharmony, no rebellion or self-will among them, Rather, there's perfect concord. One and many, motion and rest, 
Icons of the hospitality of Abraham capture the dynamic paradox of the Trinity and represent to the faithful an image of that divine life that we seek in union with God of triune love. That life was revealed to the people of Israel only indirectly in types and shadows. And we'll talk about typology a little later, but you know what foreshadowing or what types in the Old Testament mean. That there are many, many times, if you come to any of the major feast days of the church for Vespers, we have Old Testament readings that show all of the types, what kind of the shadows, the things that were awaiting fulfillment and now can be understood through the Christological lens, through our understanding of who Christ is and who the Theotokos is, especially for those feasts of Christ and of the Mother of God. People who who don't make it to Vespers miss that aspect, that um, that actually there's a there's a, a kind of a healing that takes place uh, within us, where you start to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the continuity between both. That's important. When Christ became man, however, the shadows passed away, and man beheld one of the Holy Trinity in the flesh, and. This is the essence of the Orthodox faith because this is where God, by his love, revealed himself to us. And because of that, and we will talk about iconography in more detail, but that's where iconography began. I, I don't remember if it was last, last year during Great Lent on the Sunday of Orthodoxy, uh, but I posed a question, who was the first iconographer? Who was the first iconographer? Do you guys know? God, I would say God is, you know, God. Because he created his son who is his own image. Eternally beginning is the, is the term that's used. Begotten from all of the ages. There was, there was a time when the son was never, there was never a time when the son was not being begotten of the father. And, uh, and then when he, when he became man, of course, he created the very first Icon, the very first visible image of God himself. Christ himself was nothing less than, you know, an icon or image of God, the very image of God. Isn't, like, that, the, isn't that related to the image of the, on the Shroud of Turin? I don't know about that connection. very similar. I thought they yeah. had a connection somehow. It might be. I mean, because every icon is based on prototypes, and prototypes go back to, they can be traced back to maybe the shroud and um, also what's called the mandelion, which was the when Christ placed his, his face on, on the cloth and the icon made without hands, it's also called. Um, that's a different story. I won't get into it because we're almost at two o'clock and I need to let you guys go. And, um, but, but if you start, if you shouldn't fear the Old Testament. The Old Testament is is. Is, it is hard to read. And so the priority of the church is to, especially for those who are new to the faith, new to the Christian faith, or even new to orthodoxy, you're going to find that there's an emphasis on the New Testament. Because we have to have, the, we have, to have an established lens through which we understand the old, what has come before. So the, the New Testament provides that lens. But then, with time, with immersion in the services of the church, and especially if you are here during those services when we have the many Old Testament readings, 
the eaves of feasts, especially the eaves of uh, Nativity and Holy Saturday, which is the eve of Pascha, like 15 Old Testament readings, you know, where you see all the types and shadows of what's fulfilled in Christ. It's awesome. And you start working your way through the, uh, the scripture through a Christological or Christ-centered perspective. Um, next, to the, next to the New Testament, probably the most used is the Psalms, the book of Psalms. So if you want to get into the Old Testament, one of the best ways is to pray with the church by using Psalms regularly. And people who, who are seeking a prayer rule for, from me usually end up starting with being prescribed to have at least a Psalm a day. Work your way through this, the book of Psalms, reading, praying, one each day. And then come back and talk to me when you've gone through the whole book of Psalms. And maybe you'll do the whole thing again, you know. Maybe you'll start doing a few a day, depending on what works. But uh, there's a book, someone was recently asking me about the the Psalms. There's a book called Christ in the Psalms by Father Patrick Reardon, which is a, a helpful book. If you start seeing how to interpret like one particular chunk of the Old Testament in a Christian manner, Start with the Psalms and having an an understanding of how to read and interpret and understand the Psalms, then um, it also will help you to apply that understanding to reading other parts of the Old Testament. Plus having something like the the Orthodox Study Bible that has limited but some footnotes and reference material and introductory material can be helpful too. But... uh, Anyway, so let's end there. And then next time we get together, we will start talking about creation. All right. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen.